You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's podcast, we have waited such a long time to interview our very special guest, David Jaggers, mainly due to COVID implications, but we're here and I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast, David. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Elizabeth. David, before we get into all of the projects that you've thought brick on, Mm -hmm. I wondered whether you could just start with a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up. I grew up in Sydney, partially, and in Darwin as well. My father was an engineer who went into building and he went up up the cyclone so when we were four or five we went to Darwin for a couple of years and he built houses up there which was fantastic fantastic to be a kid up there yeah amazing sort of place to grow up and then back to Sydney and grew up in Castle Craig actually yeah right near us on the water we found a little old rundown house on the water and yeah lived there and when you're in Darwin, what are your fondest memories? You s- I just, you know, we used to just go exploring. And actually, when we lived in Darwin, I think crocodile hunting was still permitted. <laughs> so we would go off into the mangroves, you know, little kids for hours with our dogs and things. And we'd find wild pig skulls and all sorts of stuff. But I think if you did that now, you'd definitely get taken by a croc for sure. Yeah. So, but it was, yeah, it was amazing place to grow up. Very free. Very free, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's really come into its own. I visited there just recently and it, it's a fantastic place to be at I, the moment as well. I haven't been back. I'd love to go back. Yeah. I haven't been back. I hadn't been I, back in 15 years right. and I was really pre- yeah. pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Yeah. So you started your school, you did most of your schooling here in Sydney then? Yeah, yeah. You know, we did a bit of infant school in in um, Darwin, but we did most of our school here, yeah. And how did your father being an engineer, did that inform any of your career progression or? I like to think that I made all my own decisions in life. (laughs) But I did, you know, my father died a few years ago and I think, you know, as he got older and I got older, I sort of started to realise actually I think he really kind of pointed me in the direction of architecture, even though I like to think that I came up with that idea myself. That may have been his genius. Yeah, he loved Loved architect. He was a frustrated architect, actually. He would have liked to have studied architecture, but he was from he was from Bermagui on the south coast, and his you know his dad was a a sleeper cutter. I think was the original official title. But he you know chopped down trees, and then they would mill them in the forest, and then cart them out and use them for boats or wharfs or you know train sleepers. Yes. And so they sort of said to him, "No, no, you can't be an architect. You know they're the first people out of work. You know when there's a recession, you've got to go and get a you know proper job." So he did engineering. Yeah. But he massive collection of architecture books, furniture, yeah. And when insist. you say he sort of guided you, looking back now, how did that, what did that look like? How so? Oh, I think, you know, he was a really good draftsman. Uh, and by that I don't mean like technical drawing. I mean he could draw. You know, he used to, as a ki- kid, he used to send off his drawings to like the Woman's Weekly prizes and winner prizes and that oh, sort of wow. thing. He could just draw anything, just by looking at it so he encouraged us all to to draw and in art and you know I think that in itself you know we all did art all loved it and I think that you know was part of the steering us in that direction my sister's an art teacher but also 
Yeah, I mean, that's the main thing. You know, it was one of those, he, he used to take us to look at buildings and show us photos of buildings and all that sort of stuff, which sort of washes over you. But I think looking back, you know, I think that influences the way you think about things. And so when did you decide that architecture was for you? Not, not until really late, actually, mm-hmm. in high school. I think, you know, right to the end when you've got to make some <laughs> kind of decision. I think, you know, both parents, both of my parents were professionals. My mum's an optometrist. It was sort of an expectation that we'd go to university. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you get to the end of school and think, oh, what am I going to do? But I think because art was my favourite subject, but I also quite liked maths and, and strangely enough I liked economics, but I think that was because that was the Paul Keating sort of era where yes. economics were quite exciting. <laughs> and I just, at, I think serendipitously, as, as of things often are, I, that, art at the school I was at had three strains. You could do painting, um, sculpture or architecture as the sort of theory component of the class. Oh, wow. So in the class we still did a lot of painting and drawing, but the theory was architecture and it was amazing. Actually, I still rely on the history that I learnt at high school more probably than anything I learned at university because then you know, once you get to university, it's like post-structural kind of history. It's like why did they put the history that way or, you know, what's the yep. idea behind it? Whereas at, at school it was just straight up linear history, you know, Assyrians, you know, Greeks, Romans, so on and so forth. So you sort of got this very linear Western architectural history, which I still, you know. When you say on. you rely on it, what, how so? Oh, well, a lot of, I think a lot of my historical knowledge of architecture other than, you know, obviously as an architect, you then start focusing on architecture and, and looking at things much more closely. But my broader sort of knowledge of the history of architecture is from high school, I think, which was fantastic. So by the time I got to the end of high school, I just, I loved architecture okay. and, and art. I think that was my best subject. So I just, it seemed a natural thing to go into architecture without and really knowing what it was going to be like. Yeah. And then, I mean, I think university is such an interesting time because I do believe we all go in with expectations and some of them come to fruition mm. and others don't. What was your experience like? I'm not sure I got a fantastic university education. In a funny way, it is what you make of it. But I think the key thing was that you sort of develop a sort of almost like a studio of people that you like to work with. And those people are still friends and, and colleagues and there are still people you talk to about art and architecture and, and ideas and that I think that was the important thing. It's almost like the interest in the people that you meet at university that you can then, you know, you all sort of push on. And, I, and definitely even at university there was this kind of, comp- there was a competitiveness to sort of do well and be smarter and better and so on, which I think that was, I'm not, I'm not sure that, the curriculum of the, of the university was at its peak when I was there, yeah. <laughs> was there, during that time, were there any standout architects for you that you enjoyed or were an inspiration? It's funny, you know, it's, it's, it was just, I mean, this makes me sound old, right, but it was a very different time to now because mm-hmm. to study architects, you had to, like, go to the library and find a magazine or a book that had something in there and often the library wouldn't be in the library so you couldn't even look at it, whereas now the, the access to information is just, like, crazy. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, I love the sort of, you know, the greats like Kahn, Korb, and, and, but finding their work and actually understanding their work was really actually quite difficult. Yes. And it was only really later that you visit the buildings and then you you actually can look at plans and photographs or go there. I really got to sort of understood some of those projects. So it was almost like even at university, and that was part of the frustration, it was like 
just a hint of architecture. You, it felt like we never really could immerse ourselves. This, Not in the same way you can now. This, I think information in some ways was such a privilege, you know. You either had to know someone or you had to be able to go there and then you had to yeah. get it, whereas now everything's available at, yeah. at the touch of a button and it's... Yeah, like we were looking at Rem Coolhouse, for instance, who, you know, was doing work at that time and then there was like there was sort of talk about this amazing firm called Herzog and de Muron, but actually could you, you couldn't find a magazine with their work in it. You, could, you heard about them, but it was really hard to find projects. And like now, you, if, if they built something, you know, in an instant you would have Well, it. you're seeing it as it's been built yeah, now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very different time. So um, was there anything, so just at university, was there anything that you thought that you didn't have to be an architect? Like were you thinking, oh, I didn't realise this was a part of architecture? You know, it's funny. I think actually, even though you 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 know you don't know what you don't know, really. Mm. But so, I think I left university thinking I understood architecture and what it was about, and I did quite well at university. And but I think I've, I've learned more about architecture out of university than in university. And I, and it's sort of like it's really the world of architecture has opened and and exponentially sort of become bigger as you the further you get away from university, the further you explore. And I think. Mm. When architecture is what you're interested in and and any work of architecture is, you know, it's building on other works of architecture, things that have happened before you. And so the more you, the more architecture and the more you've looked at, the more you study, the more things you've got to sort of resources, I guess, mm. to draw on. So, David, you finish university. What happens next? Well, actually, we came out of university in the middle of the recession we had to have. Yes. Part of the fun of four kids. <laughs> in the Rob Banana Hawk. Republic, yeah. yeah. Which... You know, you look back now and actually everything they did, that sort of massive change to Australia was has set Australia on this sort of path of, of prosperity actually, but it was tough at that time. Obviously. It's really, you know, and I think it's interesting for younger generations. I mean, I remember that a distinct moment in time and what it did to families mm. and mine and, and professions yeah, as well, yeah. and it was very scary, mm. you know. So yes. it was a defining period and I don't mm. know whether... From our generation, I don't think any of no one has an idea of that. No, it's never from, happened because since, it's never it? happened. No, no. no yeah. yeah, yeah. People lost their houses, had to sell up everything and start again, and it was a terrible time, mm. really. And there was certainly no work out there. So yeah, um, yeah. So I graduated, and there was no real job to go to, and I got invited to go back and teach some first year, which I did, and then. Through teaching first year, I was given a commission to do a house in the country and that sort of just flowed on from one little project to another. So before I knew it, I was sort of working for myself. Mm -hmm. But I did do those projects under one of my teachers at university because I needed a registered architect to sort of do the work under. And that went on for a while. But even that sort of, I think I had a, an amazing house that I just started in Palm Beach and then was it the... Asian crisis, you know, oh, yeah. the collapse in Asia. Yeah. And that, those people had their business was in Asia. And so all of a sudden that, that died as well. So anyway, so there was a few years of just finding my own way around. And then um, in my final studio, studio at university, I, Nick Merkett was one of the tutors. And, and through that process, I became good friends with Nick. And, you know, a group of us or our group of friends were, Nick was, you know, was part of that. And, and Nick sort of rang me one day and said, you know, Neil, Camilla's going on maternity leave and Neil needs someone to come in. You know, are you interested? I was like, yeah, sure. And actually, I didn't really know anything about um, 
Neil and Camilla, other than what Nick had told had talked about. And Nick talked about them in such sort of, you know, like praise, like, well, not praise, I don't know what the right word is, but, you know, they were such giants, obviously, from his point of view. And so I, it was totally on what his sort of telling of what of talking about them. And I said, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. So <laughs> I, I don't think I really knew what I was getting myself. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, and, that, and then I, that's how I ended up working with Neil and Camilla. And just in those first projects that you were doing yourself, was there one that you that was an experience that defined sort of where you thought you would go in architecture? I don't think so. I think, you know, they're just all, I think the thing with buildings is they're all just, you know, they're, they're sort of a, a design process and you kind of, actually by the time they finish you kind of, you're bored with that idea yeah. and you're just looking for the next one. So yep. they're all just a sort of a try this and try that. Um, and I think, I mean, I think that's quite, a, it's important that that's, it always stays that way, that you don't suddenly start just churning out the same thing over and over. Find the, oh, yeah, I've found it now. I can just sort of reproduce that. Yes. But you just keep going, like what's another, you know. And just like a general question because you touched on it where you've got this, you know, with architecture, sometimes there is that stop-start, you know, everyone's all in and then something happens. Is that – how do you deal with that over your career? I mean, have you noticed that that's just a constant, you know, constant change where things may start or then stop? I mean, because the profession is so bound by competitions mm. and things are full-on, then they may not go ahead. Is that a fair way to describe it or – Yeah, it's a, it is an unpredictable – sort of process and yes. and it doesn't it just means you can't sort of if you win a competition like I think we've won three competitions this year none of them have really gone ahead yet yes and so you can't think okay we're done yeah now we're set you can never think that you just got to keep going but I think we have found that if something doesn't sort of take off straight away if it doesn't maintain momentum then there's a good chance it'll never happen right so when things stall I think we've We've got to the point where we think, uh oh, like we've got to either get that job moving again or or it's never going to happen. So yeah, right. Sort of get a feel for those, those sort of things. And so when you join, when, when is it that you joined for Camilla's maternity leave? In 1998. Oh, wow. Mm. So and I think I finished uni in 94. So, there, yeah, I graduated in 95. Yeah, so it was. What was the first project that you worked on? I mean, it was a good time to join the practice because that Neil and Camilla just finished doing the Droger apartment. Yes. Which was like, I remember walking in for the interview and they had a black and white printout of it, just up on the wall, like a, you know, with some hand colouring on it or something. And I just thought, and I looked at it and went, did you guys do that? And they said, yeah, yeah, you know, you know they were sort of over it. And I was like, wow, that, you know, like that's something that no one else is doing in Australia. It was where I sort of thought, yeah, these guys are. This is really interesting work. And I, you know, I just thought, oh, yeah, got to say yes. I've got to, you know, got to get this job. So, and, but, you know, after that, we were just doing little bits and pieces, I think. But it did feel like it was the beginning of a kind of trajectory for the practice as well that we started to, you know, the Olympics were coming. Um, so we, we got the toilets at the Olympics and, you know, we tried to make that as good a job as we could and we did a comp- we did the competition for Commonwealth Place in Canberra and we won that and I think Sarah my wife and I had had sort of said you know we came out of university it was a recession we thought well what, what if we don't get a job what should we do and we thought well look let's, let's we could just pack off go overseas and study somewhere you know that just you know and we we sort of maintained that 
sort of fantasy for quite a long time. But actually, there was never a time when the next project in the office wasn't like hugely exciting. You know, it's like, no, we can't go now. You oh, know, right. The Holman House, or yeah. you know, so it just was it just sort of took off. Yeah. And then I'm just curious with the dynamic with the three because I I was referencing. Some interview I'd actually seen, I think it was Ron Howard, and he talked around being with Steven Spielberg and they sort of said, with three, you've always got to have a majority decision. Three is a really powerful, mm. you know, if you've got a brain's trust of three. How is it? How does that work with, with the three of you? I think, you know, the, we're, we're quite sort of different and different skills and I think mm. that's, that helps, you know, that there's not a, you know, we sort of complement each other I think mm. is, is the... I don't know. It's inter- you know, I'm watching the. I don't know if you've watched the Beatles. No, it's on the list. Yes, oh, unbelievable. So good at so many levels. But, yeah. But one of the interesting things about it is watching another process of creative process of these, you know, of these people. And it's interesting because you initially you watch it and you think, and I didn't. I had never thought this. I always thought John was the genius, but you realize Paul is like this. I mean, they're all like the Beatles are just amazing. But yeah, you just realize Paul is this. He's like unbelievable, and John's also good. And and you sort of think that Ringo and George are kind of like they're almost like just the session musicians that hang around. Mm. And then then actually you think no, no, hang on, George is like coming up with the riffs that are kind of the that that guitar riff that he just plays is the kind of hook of the whole song. Mm. And he just he's just improvised that while he's he's listening to the other two. Mm. And not that that's a, you know when certainly not the Beatles and and. That's and we don't necessarily work that way because there's you know as you probably know there was friction there and George leaves and all sorts of things. yes yeah yeah but it's it sort of it, it does sort of point to a sort of there's a dynamic there and I think we're we're similar that, that we sort of we've described it as a peloton before that people take a different turns of being kind of on the front yeah okay and it, yeah. And, and it does happen as the as a project goes through that different people take charge. But we all sort of work on things together. I think mm-hmm. we work in a sort of complementary way. How, I mean, look, the thing is Neil and Camilla are so, like they're both so like incredibly intelligent mm. and talented that it's, it's you know, there's also a complaint of trying to keep up sometimes. You know, they're, they're super. I'm sure that's bright. not the case, David. That's certainly not what they say no. about yourself. What Just in terms of that taking the, the lead on different things, is that about a passion for the particular pro- – how does that normally come about? Is it – Look, I think it's interesting in the documentary, right, where where Paul McCartney says to John Lennon, but you're the boss and I've always been the second boss. <laughs> and John goes, what are you kidding? You're the boss. You know, there's this sort of – I think in our practice, Neil is the is the boss, right? He, because actually there's an editing process required and, and, it, and somewhere in the um, design process someone's got to be able to say, no, we're not doing that one, we're doing this yeah. one. And so the office sort of works, it, it's quite open for design ideas and, and how we're going to approach, but actually Neil will lead the ultimately the way that he'll, the, the project goes. Mm. At the very beginning of, you know, when I started listening to podcasts, when I dipped my toe into listening to podcasts, I... Um, stupidly just started to listen to the history of Rome. Oh, yes, okay. Which only after I started listening to it did I realise it's like hundreds of episodes. Once you commit it, it goes on forever. But you, you really, but the history of Rome teaches you that everything there is to know about anything has kind of already happened, like politics, power, all that sort of stuff. But one of the things I, I didn't realise from Rome is, 
is the idea of the dictator that came from Rome, right? But it wasn't like we think that of dictators like these kind of maniacal things. It was like when you when when you need to really get something done, you can't have a democratic process. It just doesn't work. Actually, yeah. you've just got to say, for one year, we're putting that person in charge because we need to sort of sort this out. And I think the office works that way, that you've got to like at, at certain points in a project, someone has to be the dictator or mm. the person in charge, basically. It's got to be, it's not a democratic process ever. And I think that's how, how we work. So like Camilla's incredibly good at strategy and sort of like strategic thinking. So often she will sort of push the, the strategy. Neil is much more, I hope they don't mind me saying these things. You know, like Harry Margalit described Neil as pure synaptic talent. And I think there's a sort of element of truth in that, that he, he's got such a broad knowledge of architecture that often things are quite instinctual for Neil. Like it's instinct that drives him. But it's not like a sort of message from God or something. It's actually, he's got, it's like the Beatles, you know. It's like you've got all this kind of background. But, you know, before they write a song, they play, they'll play Chuck Berry, they'll play Bob yeah. Dylan, they'll just play songs and then suddenly they'll launch into their own. And that's when they kind of figured out this sync, yeah. you know, that works. When you see in this documentary, they're in the late 20s, but they're already like incredibly seasoned. Like, they're yeah. just brilliant. Anyway. But that, but I guess that's what they're saying because they got that seasoning through all of that yeah. when no one knew who the hell they were and they were just doing all of this in Germany and just playing nightclub after nightclub after. And I don't think they were getting paid anything. Yeah. And they just, so, yeah. But it, it, that's the interesting thing about the design process. You can see real similarities. Like they, oh, yeah. we call ours, I like to think of ours as a painterly approach. We just start. Like you don't. Yep. Don't overthink it. In fact, often before you've digested the constraints of a project, we start designing because it's almost like limbering up. And they do the same thing. They start just playing other people's music. And then they, for instance, will, you know, for a while there, they would just, they'd say, hey, what about that song we wrote when we were like 15? Should we try that one? So they play a song that, you know, they wrote 10 years ago when they were kids because I said, well, maybe it'll sound good now. You know, we, we rejected it before, but maybe. And I think we do the same thing. We look at other past projects where it didn't go ahead or competitions that didn't happen and we think, you know, could that apply for this project, you know? And and then that sort of, from that, you sort of, you start to explore new ideas. But it's almost like you got to get the kind of, you got to exercise the muscles to sort of, you know, it's like Picasso also said, there's no, nothing's really original. He used to paint versions of the master's paintings and then he just sort of have an accident take them wherever they went you know yeah. i think our, our process is, is similar to that also that there's a robustness of the of the three of us that mm. can sort of be quite we can be quite straightforward and say no i don't i don't think that's right or yes i do and this is why or, and there's no it's not a personal criticism it's just a, it's just a sort of an idea and you can mm. say okay and the idea just moves on mm. although you know part of it is also just keeping a record of all of those ideas so we end up with lots of proposals for each project because you then you can come back and say oh hang on maybe that wasn't okay and you sort of go down this path and then you, when that one sort of dead ends you've got to sort of come back and say well maybe this one was the one to that through. Actually, interestingly enough, Andrew Ben, he was in a competition for us for tiles. Yeah. And when he came on the podcast, he said, we actually used that design only just a couple of years ago. And the design itself was sort of 12 years old, but he'd used it for something else. And I thought, yeah. isn't that amazing how you can bring those designs oh, to yeah. fruition? 
Well, that's part of doing competitions is it's like research. It's like it really is building up a sort of broader researching and building a, a really broad base of, of architectural knowledge. You know? So we do, we've got so many competitions we've done and you, we go back 20 years to competitions that we didn't win. We still think we should have won, of course. Yeah. But we didn't win and we look at the scheme and say, you know, we could, that's still a really powerful idea or really the strategies, you know, really works for this project and you, and you can use it, you know, you use it again. But it's not like we're not sort of copying. The nice thing is you're not copying someone else's. It's actually Still your yours. own sort of thinking that you then pull apart. And it'll never turn out the same as that proposal, but mm. it's sort of the beginning of another another design, yeah. Is there – you guys have designed a lot of brick projects. Mm. Do you have a favourite brick project? No, I, I think the latest favourite is Newcastle, mm. the building we did there. But they're all favourites. I mean, you know – I think the project we did for the garden house in in Bellevue Hill was, a, you know, that was a, a fun project because we were trying to sort of use brick in a different way. You did, and, yeah. And and then it feels like that that way of using bricks now become like almost a, you know I hate to say it, but I've seen it like on project times now with that sort of messed up brick and yes. it's become a kind of standard. And I guess it's funny how that's. Uh, happens i mean i guess for our audience what they're referring to in the garden house and correct me if i'm wrong david but the bricklayers actually knocked each brick out a little bit so it created yeah. this wavy subtle effect just messed up yeah <laughs> rough well yeah. I, it looked but it still looked beautiful yeah. in its in its outcome but we yeah, we do see we see the impact the awards have because you can see what comes through mm. and almost pinpoint it exactly to the competition or who won it or what the trends were. And I think the challenging thing for us when you look at from a jury perspective is like, has this been done before? You know, because we're always looking at who's really pushing the envelope. But in saying that, over the last well, 11 years, some of the things that are winning today, well, a lot of the ones that aren't even winning today would have won, you know, six years yeah. ago or something like that. So. Oh, it feels like brick architecture has kind of taken off, doesn't it, in, in Australia anyway, and actually in the worldwide probably. Mm. It's, you know, but then you sort of see, I don't want to say negative things about bricks, but you do see projects where, you know, that every brick project's now got curved corners and, yeah. you know, like it's kind of become... It kind of gets out of, a little bit out of control. Yep. Obviously, there's been a. I think there's been a sort of increase in the use of things like arches. You know, trying to use brick and the things that brick do well, but then you get really loopy arches and all sort of weird things going on, which is interesting maybe, but not always. No, it's yeah. And why, David? For you, why do you like designing in brick? You know, I've had a, a sort of different attitudes towards brick because when my working with when I was young. I'm, I'd go to building sites with my father, you know, and he, he did mass housing, not like apartment buildings, but like he'd do 30 houses for the Department of Defence or right. you know, 25 houses for the Department of Housing. And they were just project homes and the bricks were used in such a sort of thin veneer kind of way. And the bricklayers were kind of scary. I can remember going to site and the bricklayers turned up and they just plonked down a case of beer and they literally proceeded to drink beer all day and they just chucked the bottles as they go, and like it's my job to pick them all up. And I'd say to my dad, how, how do they even, like, do they even do a good job, those guys? They just drank beer all day. And he said, look, they lay the bricks, they're 
plum and they're level and, mm. you know, the, the right price. So it's fine. <laughs> I don't care what they do as long as they can labour it. I didn't like that kind of, I don't like, I still don't like those sort of where brick feels really thin and kind of just like a external skin. Mm. I think the, the thing that, you know, the, the, the thing with, that has happened with brick more recently is that, that people are thinking about how to, to design so that it doesn't look thin. Because the reality is if you do a multi-storey building with brick, it's not a load-bearing structure. Yes. You know, and it hasn't been. like the, the, It could be, but it hasn't well, been. Well, the Empire State Building is a brick building that's not load-bearing structure as well. Mm. Like it's, it's a long time since brick's been really used in, big, in tall buildings in mm. a load-bearing way. But the, the Empire State Building is a case in point. It doesn't – it sort of still looks like a load-bearing building. Mm. Like it's still trying to talk about the sort of nature of what a brick is. And not that – I don't think you can be dogmatic about anything. I, you know, I'm not into sort of rules about how things have to be used. But it does sometimes feel like brick, you know, has a certain – there's certain things bricks want to do. Mm. And so that's what – interests me that you, with Newcastle it's it's trying to make it read with the existing brick building feel like a sort of a, a, a load-bearing weighting building the, the punched openings are feel mm. like they're right for a brick building they're not sort of there's not three bricks to a sort of massive course between each window so you know it just feels like a couple of bricks stuck on. Mm. If we talk about Newcastle just for a second there the patterning how I mean it's intricate for a building mm. could you explain how that came about and then how it was executed interestingly we had done a competition a while ago and we had and in that competition one of the ideas was to have a gradation of brick up through the building mm. and we didn't win that competition and we sort of forgot about that and and when we were looking at newcastle we were dealing with a really blonde brick at the base mm. but in a in a context of all these quite sort of dark brick because there was a very different, our facade was considered heritage. It was actually, I think, built in 1969 or something, in a 1930s style. Right, so yeah. It had this kind of, it was sort of faux heritage really. But it still, it still felt quite robust and it was quite, you know, it had detail to it. So we looked at lots of ideas for how the brick could go. Did you have a light middle, you know, bottom, middle and top? Yes. You know, which is quite a sort of classical approach or, or did we sort of try and link to the sort of, other dark bricks of the, uh, the surrounding buildings up the, the top. And anyway, we sort of went to the gradation and then we sort of remembered we'd done that before. But actually coming up with the gradation was really quite hard. Mm-hmm. And we had someone in our office, Xiaoxia, who is, was just really good with patterns and numbers. And she, I think she did a Google search to sort of how do you do a gradation and there was all these sort of strategies about how, you, you know, obviously... You can do it in Photoshop and things with pixels, but it's not a – you can't just apply that to the bricks no. because you need to actually say this brick's going to be this colour, this brick's going to be – so she worked out the mathematical kind of sequence. It's sort of like a – you know, it's an ABC where you have – you sort of go up and then you sort of got to take a step back yeah. and then go up and oh. then take a step back. And So she actually worked through the pattern in a lot of detail and then we took that and, and applied the bricks. Then we had to sort of search for bricks that would – make a gradation so that you went from this very super blonde at the bottom to the dark almost a barrel blue at the top mm. and i think we went to barrel bricks initially and we and they weren't and to be honest they weren't perfect the, mm. the the blue at the top was great the blonde one i think at the bottom was okay but there were a few in the middle that there were big leaps and we weren't sure that they were going to work and yeah. actually the builder 
you know, as they do, went out to sort of look for other options. And they, because they were sort of, I guess, so unaligned with, they're just looking for the best price probably. But they ended up sourcing different bricks from different manufacturers and got a really good yeah, it's you know, beautiful. They really got the sort of the steps were just perfect, mm. and they were like, "Well, it works for us because it's cheaper this way." And we were like, "Well, it works for us because now we've got a really nice grade between the, the white and the dark." Mm. Yeah. And then we we obviously had to do very we did very detailed drawings for the bricklayer. We did a sort of drawing that said, "This is the premise. This is the sort of strategy," and then we had set out points from where to start, where to make up when you get to the point where you've got to sort of make the pattern just work. And then the bricklayers came back and said, look, we needed it one-to-one. I can't tell my guys on site based on this drawing. It's too complicated. I can understand, but it's too complicated. So then we did one-to-one drawings and we just A, B, C, D, E, F the bricks. And they said, no, 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 they're not going to get that. It's still a code. We need it in colour so that they can see it. So then we did it in colour and then they came back and said, no, actually, forget about the colour. Let's just do it in black and white so they're black. But I think once they got going, you could see them on site. They were fantastic bricklayers. Once they sort of got the system, they didn't need it. You know, we'd done drawings right. for the whole building, but they didn't <laughs> need them anymore. They, they, then they could just look at it and say, okay, what level are we up to? Okay, got it. You know, this level is this pattern, this this course is this pattern. Were you holding your breath though whilst it was oh, going out? <laughs> yeah, it's all behind scaffold. So, you, you know, walking on one scaffold deck, trying to sort of look up, or down to see whether the creation's working. Yeah. And just thinking, oh, man, I hope this works. And there definitely, and there still is bits on the building where it sort of looks a little bit like measles, you know, as it sort of goes from a light to a darker brick, it gets a real sort of And some of the different sort of lights coming on the building as well can can give off yeah. like a different look of yeah. the gradation. So yeah. I think I personally was very worried about it. And then the builder called me one day and said, we're pulling the scaffold down, it just looks amazing. And I said, really, you're sure? Because, like, it could be a disaster. He goes, no, it just looks amazing, you know. So that was good. That was, um. was like, whew, thank goodness for that. <laughs> I mean, all you can do is sort of try and be very thorough and systematic about how. It is know. hard, though, with brick because, I mean, when it's laid, taking down a wall is a big deal. No, you you've got you totally got to put your faith in the, the tradesmen to do mm. a good job. These guys were serious about doing a good job. You could tell that from the beginning. So we just had to, you know, they did everything else. They did. We did parabolic arches at the top. Not a problem. <laughs> you know, we had a sort of herringbone seal on portions that were, had end up with quite a big seal near the top. Yep, no worries. So they just kind of, nothing was a problem, which was great. With all the discussion now around the climate and, and construction, where do you see the role of architects for that? Gee, that's a big question. <laughs> well, I think brick's interesting in, in the sustainability discussion because I think back to the history of Rome, where Rome basically took bricks everywhere, like all through Europe, the Mediterranean, you know, Central Asia. It's hard to tell where bricks really came from, I think. I mean, I'm no expert on the history of bricks, but I know the Romans just built everything out of bricks. So you, mm. you go to places in Scandinavia and you think, you've got all these trees, why would you build out of bricks? But it's because bricks just got brought in and, and they're such a fantastic building material because they use the soil there. You know, mm. you just you just dig it out of the ground right where you are, which I think is instead of transporting everything from China or wherever or digging up iron ore in Western Australia, shipping it off to Japan to be processed and then shipping back in the form of steel. It's just crazy. Mm. Whereas brick, 
a project we've been doing recently. We sort of did some investigation. There's brick plants that are already using excavated material from building sites to use in their, in mm. their mixes, and that could only increase. I think there's so much potential for using material that's locally, essentially locally sourced. Mm. And a lot of the brick companies, as I understand it, are now firing bricks with zero carbon techniques. Mm. So you've got the opportunity to really make a, a sort of a local material that's a fantastic material and can do anything. Mm. So I think it's a, it's a really important material going forward from a sustainability point of view. But, and, and it's got great quality, you know, qualities of its own. And are you pleased? I mean, we've always looked at architects as the influences of, of design and, and construction. And are you, do you feel that they're positioned in that? I mean, that a lot of your community has taken the lead with net zero carbon targets and things yeah. like that. Is that something that you feel architects should be able to be leading on? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's interesting because there was a while there where sustainable design was, you know, it was almost used as a kind of marketing tool. By I know. It's like we're sustainable. Which, and it shouldn't, shouldn't it's be like that way. greenwash, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. greenwashing. And yeah. that was very frustrating. And, you know, only up until recently, even Green Star, which I always, you know, we've done, a green, we've done Green Star buildings before. The UTS building we did, I think, six-star as-built rated yes. laboratory, which was the first in Australia. But it still felt like it was just greenwashing to me. It didn't feel like it really changed the um, way that that building was built. But now Green Star's taken a massive leap and now it really is about a sustainable design. Mm. But also I think what they've brought to the fore is that buildings, the, what, the most sustainable thing you can do with a building is not knock one down and build another one. You know, like a 20-year-old building, you knock it down and build another one. It's so unsustainable. Mm. And the buildings that are really need to be designed well, obviously, and, and they need to be resilient and flexible, but they, they need to be built well so that they'll last hundreds of years and then and, and adaptable enough to be reused for other purposes. And I think that's the sort of thing we've been sort of saying for a long time. It feels like finally people are saying, yes, that is actually the most sustainable thing you can do is not build anything. Yep. And to, you know, so that really anything you build needs to last. It needs mm. to be well built. And I think material that does last centuries, it's not a... It's not a Luca Bonds cladding. Mm. David, you were a tutor at university for a while there. And what what sort of is your advice to young architects looking to graduate? Look, I think I can only talk from my experience, I suppose. But you know, you only sort of you only learn so much at university. And I think the real the real real learning happens when you're working and if you're working for good people or with good people that's where you learn a lot mm. so that my advice would be to just try and work with the best people you can and I think that's true if you look at architects that you admire and you look at their work and and you sort of do any research on them you realize they worked for architects who were great architects and they worked for architects there's this sort of lineage of architecture and it's really important that you're only going to be as good as the person teaching you how mm. to do it so I think that would be my advice to try and work for good architects. Yeah. Final question. What do you think is the biggest misconception about architects? I think architects get blamed a lot for things that they have no control over. Mm-hmm. So the classic is when cost-cutting occurs on, in buildings for all sorts of reasons but very rarely driven by, or by the architect or as a causal result of what the architect's done. But it's always like... If something doesn't work in a building, it's the architect's fault. It's often not the architect who 
who uh, was the originator of that issue. Yes. So, no, I think uh, that's been my biggest learning that, yeah, you could design a building and then, you know, an engineer could spec something out or change the spec and, mm. and that's been from a technical perspective something I've really learnt and I before I started in this role, I thought design was a design and everyone stuck with the design, but often that's not the case. Mm. David, thank you so much. We're now going to go into the rapid fire questions. Reading the news, a newspaper or online? Online. Handwriting or typing? Uh, My handwriting's so bad, typing. For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, pen or an e-pen? Pencil. Do you like to read books or listen to audio books? Read books. What is important to you, style or substance? Both. Coffee or tea? Coffee. TV shows or movies? Don't really, not into either much, but probably movies, I would say. Antique or brand new slash modern? Both. Call or text? Call. I'm in the call age group, yeah. (laughs) Travel back in time or into the future? I think back. Exterior or interior? Again, both, I think. Video games or board games? Neither. (laughs) Neither. Form or function? Both, again. And in relation to design, complex or simple? Simple. David, thank you always for thinking brick and being on our podcast today. Thanks very much. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.